Amen. Revelation chapter 4 tonight. Revelation chapter 4. I have one goal tonight. As you and I embrace Revelation chapter 4, this is my goal. That all of us would leave after being confronted with the truth of Revelation chapter 4 and leave here tonight just going, wow. Wow. (laughs) I hope that will be the case tonight. There are very few passages in the Bible that you and I are actually there. We're actually in the Bible. But I believe that this chapter and next week's chapter, we're going to be there. We're actually going to witness what John is writing about tonight that's going to take place one day. So I hope that even makes Revelation chapter 4 and 5 come alive for you personally more than maybe other scripture even does. That's why personally... These two chapters are my two favorite out of this great book of Revelation. So let's dive into it tonight. I'll just say one other thing by way of introduction. Chapter 4 is all about the one who is seated on the throne. In these 11 verses in Revelation chapter 4, the throne of God is mentioned 11 times. The throne of God is the focal point of John's vision and revelation that he is getting from Christ's messenger. And so, he writes in Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. It was already open. He didn't have to open it. It was already open. And it just... It took me back, it's sort of a a contrast here, just for a moment, between last week we saw that, that Christ, the head of the church, was standing outside the door of the church at Laodicea, and he was knocking to get in, and the door was shut. And yet, the door to the Creator, the door to God, was open to man, shut to Christ, open to man. By the way, I believe that beginning in chapter 4, we mark the final sort of division of the book. From here on out, it's prophetic. And back in chapter 1, verse 19, John was told to write the things which are, the things which are present, the things which he saw, the things which will be, and then the things, you know, after. Three divisions there. And chapter 1 was the first division, the things that were. Chapter 2 and 3 were the things that are, the message to the churches. And then chapters 4 through the rest of the book are the things that are to come. And it's very interesting that from chapter 4 through the rest of the book, there is no more mention of the church. Because I believe that the church now, looking ahead, is not here on earth anymore from Revelation chapter 4 through the rest of the book, you and I who know Christ, we will be in heaven. 
And we won't be experiencing the things on earth that others will be experiencing. We will be in glory with Jesus. So he says, after these things, I looked and there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet. And it said, come up here so that I can show you what must happen after these things. Obviously, the these things in sequence were the things he talked about in Revelations 1, 2, and 3. And notice the word must. It's a very important word. Because this means it is of necessity because it's established by God. In other words, John's not saying, well, these things might happen. No. He says, because of the decree of God, because God has said it, because God has established it, these things are absolutely necessary that they happen. They must happen. And the thing about God is, God is so great that anything that He says is going to happen, He can make it happen. And that should be an assurance and a reassurance and an encouragement to all of us who are staking our very life, our eternal souls, everything on Him and on the trustworthiness of His Word. Because if he said it, it will happen just as he said. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. In other words, I didn't get to be transported to heaven on my own. I, I went on a long journey, but it didn't take me very long because the Spirit enabled me to get there. And, and even though the abode of God, heaven, is way out there, John was able through the Spirit to get there immediately. And one of the things that John is going to teach us about heaven is that heaven is really defined as the place of worship of God. I mean, yeah, there are other places of worship. This cafeteria has turned Tuesday night into a place of worship. And there are all kinds of places of worship. And you and I, because we are priests with, with Christ, we can worship God whenever and wherever we want to. Our worship is not confined. But the place of worship as it always should be is heaven. He heaven cannot just be defined as the place where God dwells. Because in a sense, God is bigger than heaven. The heavens, the Bible says, can't contain God. Neither can the earth. He's bigger than that. But he chooses heaven as the place of worship. And every time you see heaven described in Revelation, what is going on up there? Worship. That's why I sort of cringe every time I might overhear even a Christian, or I think they're a Christian, who says, I, I really don't get into worship. I don't like to worship. I'm like, oh, you're going to be in trouble when you get to heaven. You know, are, are you going to do what other people do and just sort of go, uh, Jesus, I'll, I'll wait till the sermon starts and then I'll come in. Or uh, I'll just take a break, God, and then I'll, you know. <laughs> That's not in Revelation. So remember, when, when you see, especially in the book of Revelation, heaven mentioned, think of it always in terms of this is the place of worship. The place where real worship, as it always should be, takes place. And notice, he says, 
And there was a throne. A throne was standing in heaven. There, wa- there wasn't anything that it was on. It, it wasn't like in a palace like thrones are today. It was literally like standing in heaven all by itself. It was fixed, but it was sort of just there, John said. And remember, too, to give John a break here, John is trying as best he can to describe the indescribable. So we have to cut John a little slack here. He did the best humanly humanly he could. We probably couldn't have done any better had we experienced the same thing that John did. The cool thing is, and the encouraging thing is, one day we won't have to take somebody else's word for what it is. We're actually going to be there to see it ourselves. And he says, a throne was standing in heaven with someone seated on it. Aren't you glad there's someone seated on the throne in heaven? And by using the word seated, it's the idea of a couple things. One, he's in control. The ruler of the universe isn't pictured as someone who's standing there wringing his hands, looking down and going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? He's always pictured as seated on the throne. And the throne of God is a symbol of His divine sovereignty, authority, and rule over the universe. There is a throne and there is someone who's always been seated on that throne. The words in the Greek language means this was a fixed abode. This is somewhere where God has always been. Even before there was anything else, He was always seated on the throne. He's always been on the throne. He always will be on the throne. And what we're seeing happen in the book of Revelation is that God is finally going to make earth be like heaven. Where He is worshipped as He is in heaven one day on earth. That's what the rest of the book of Revelation is all about. It's all about the worship of God. And then he begins to describe the one seated on the throne. And he says the one seated on it was like Jasper. This speaks of a a clear crystal. Even maybe get into your mind a a diamond, many-sided, that's refracting light all over the place. Remember that the Bible teaches that God dwells in unapproachable light. Heaven, there's no shadows there. In heaven, it is an unbelievable light display. Like we've never seen before. And he says, the one seated on it was like Jasper and Carnelian. This speaks of sort of a flesh-colored in appearance. And there was a rainbow looking like it was made of emerald encircling the throne. We all know what a rainbow looks like, but then this emerald too, and what's that all about? It's beyond our... All I know is the beauty, the splendor, the brilliance of it all is just overwhelming. And I want you to remember... (laughs) Tomorrow, when you go off to work or you're dealing with life or whatever, I want you to remember 
that there's one seated on the throne. And He's never left the throne and He never will leave the throne. And you and I need to always remember God is in control. He is on the throne. Even though my life may seem chaotic and the world may seem to be falling apart, God is on the throne and He's moving the world towards worldwide acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord. He goes on to say, and and notice as John is, is seeing all this, everything he sees is in reference to the throne. Where he'll say, well, this is the one seated on the throne. And then, you know, talk about what's in front of the throne and what's around the throne and what's in the midst of the throne. But it's always coming back to the throne. The reminder of the sovereign rule and authority of God over the universe. He rules. He reigns. And that's what John wants us all to realize tonight as he saw this revelation in heaven then he says in a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders the word elder in the new testament simply means a leader a spiritual leader in this sense he's talking about a a divine administrator why 24 I believe that the number 24 in the Bible is a representative number. In other words, when the Bible almost always uses the the number 24, it's always to represent a larger group. A larger group. I don't believe that these 24 elders have anything to do with the nation of Israel. I don't think that they're angels. I think if you study this out and look at elders and what is happening here, that this group of 24 elders on these 24 thrones are representative of you and I. The saints of God, the church who is redeemed and who will be in heaven seeing this actually take place. Let me give you a biblical example of this from the Old Testament book of Chronicles. When David, say, was beginning to build the priesthood, there were hundreds of priests. But the Bible says in Chronicles that he made 24 priests sort of representative of the entire priesthood. Then he went on and he pulled out 24 worship leaders. And those 24 worship leaders were representative of all the musicians, all the the singers, everyone who had anything to do with worship, in the temple. So 24 was a representative number. You go through and you look at the genealogies and the messianic line. And what does the Bible use? 24 to represent the messianic line. Well, obviously, there were way more than 24 in that line, but the Bible uses 24 as a representative number of a larger group. And so I think what he's seeing here is, is yes, 24 thrones and 24 elders, but they are representative of all of us who know the Lord is our Savior and will be in this passage one day watching this ourselves and being able to think back to this time on Tuesday night in Chandler, Arizona at Basha High School Cafeteria and go, 
I remember this. And now I'm here. I'm actually watching this take place. He says, these elders were dressed in white, bright, brilliant clothing. And they had golden crowns on their heads. Here's something encouraging. Again, this word crown is the Greek word Stephanos, not the word diadem, meaning one crown that's inherited. This is a crown that was given to victors who had overcome and conquered through struggle. I hope that encourages you tonight. That's the crowns that we will be given And they come through the trials and struggles of life. It's just like, it's the same kind of wreath that I talked about that was given to the athletes in the Ismithian and Olympic Games that worked hard and trained and put blood, sweat, and tears into all that and then went out and competed and had obstacles and they overcame. They conquered everything in their path and they got a crown for it, a wreath, a Stephanos. John is saying that when we get to heaven, part of the, of, of the joy of getting these crowns, these rewards from Christ, is because it's a reminder of what we were able to overcome through Him. Which is why later on we cast these crowns at His feet. Because we understand we didn't overcome or conquer anything on our own. The only way we overcame and conquered was through Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are more than conquerors, Paul says, through Him who loved us and died for us. See, that's the part Revelation wants to get into our heads too. That's why Jesus, when He talked to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, kept telling them, to Him who overcomes, to Him who conquers, to Him who is victorious. And yes, there's going to be a struggle There's always a struggle, but how much sweeter will be the victory whenever we we overcome something because of our walk and growth with Christ. That's what the Stephanos crowns that we will get and receive one day will remind us of. And then he goes on to say this, from the throne. He's talked about on the throne. He's talked about around the throne. Now in verse 5, from the throne the throne. There came out flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. These picture the fact that at this moment in history, God has now assumed judgment mode. Judgment mode. Judgment is getting ready to come. And where's it coming from? It's coming from the throne. God is getting ready to allow His Son to come and rule and reign. But before He does that, are those seven years we're going to talk about through the book of Revelation where the great tribulation happens on earth. But don't, misunderstand here it is from the throne that God is getting ready to pour out judgment on the earth and then he says there were seven flaming torches 
These weren't lampstands inside. These were torches that would be used outside. And he says these flaming torches are like the seven spirits of God. Many might read that and go, I thought God was one spirit. This is describing the fullness of the divine nature. Look at it as the sevenfold spirit of God, if you will. It's not trying to chop the Holy Spirit up into seven pieces. It is simply a reminder of the different aspects of divine nature. In other words, he's basically saying, this is the fullness of God. This is the fire of God. And it is burning in front, verse 5, of the throne. And in front of the throne, verse 6, was something like a sea of glass-like crystal. This transparent pavement. So now you can begin to think this picture that John is, and again, in his best way that he can, painting for us. He is captivated by this throne that's standing in heaven. And he really can't even describe too well the one seated on the throne other than just to describe the light that is coming out of the throne, the place where the throne is. And it's unbelievable light. It, it's, it's clear and yet there's rainbows and there's emeralds and there's all this beautiful light that is just you know, shining and being refracted all over the place. And as if it's not bouncing enough, and as if there's not enough light, in front of the throne is this crystal clear pavement of which you can only imagine how the light is just bouncing everywhere and is just almost more than, obviously, humanly, we could take in. No wonder we need some glorified eyeballs when we get up there to see the sights and the beauty and how even today in our fallen human bodies, even as Christians, our eyesight, to think of the perfect eyesight that we will have and then to think that the colors in heaven are not going to be anything like that. We think that there's you know vibrant, beautiful color here on earth. When we get to heaven, we're going to realize what color really is. We're going to see green and red and, you know, all those colors like we've never seen them before. And then he says, in the middle of the throne or in the midst of the throne and around the throne were these four living creatures, these supernatural beings These angels, if you will, that God created. And like other angelic beings, man, the description of these things is like, I can't wait to see one of these things. Listen to how John describes them. First of all, he says, they are full of eyes in front and in back. It speaks of their alertness to who they are and And what their privilege is. Let's remember something before we move on. These supernatural beings that John is about to describe have always had the calling, the privilege, the permanent occupation of being as near to the throne of God as any of His other creation ever has been. They've never left according 
to Revelation 4. And therefore, their awareness of God and who He is because they are in such close proximity to Him on His throne is just beyond what any other of God's creation has ever experienced. He goes on to say that this first supernatural being was like a lion. Again, he has to use the word like. It's not a lion. If I had to, he said, it just, it, it corresponds, it resembles as much to a lion as, as what I know. He says, the second creature is like an ox. The third creature had a face like a man's. And the fourth creature looked like an eagle flying. And each one of the four living creatures had six wings. And again, he says, because I think this just so captivated him more than anything else. He says, and I can't help it. They're full of eyes around and even on the inside. We begin to think about the creations of God and the creatures that God has made, even in our creation. The things in nature. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have even our eyes and understanding open to a whole new realm because we're going to be able to finally see angels. And folks, the angels of God aren't these people dressed up in long white robes with wings on their back. These are just some of the angels. And these angels are supernatural beings that John is seeing at the very throne of God are very similar to the same ones that Isaiah saw back in Isaiah 6 when he said, after King Uzziah died, I looked up and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he said there were these seraphs or seraphim. And he describes them exactly like John does in Revelation 4. He says they had six wings. And yet Isaiah adds a little bit more to the description. He says with two of their wings, they hid their face. With two, they they covered their feet. And with two, they flew constantly. Think of them as angelic helicopters in front of the throne of God for all time. And yet notice something about Isaiah's description. Four of the wings, in a sense, were connected to worship. Two of the wings were connected with service. Worship is always the first thing. Always the first thing. Heaven is a place of worship. It's a place of worship. And so again, I I just want to draw your attention to the fact that because of the proximity of these supernatural beings to the throne of God, their eyes and, and all over, their awareness, their knowledge of God was just unbelievable. My opinion... They were the most knowledgeable angels that God's ever created. Because they have been there ever since they were created at the throne of God. Never left. And then he goes on to say this. They never rest day or night. It means two things. First of all, they never cease to do what they're doing. This is their permanent calling, their permanent occupation. And the second thing the word cease means is they never keep quiet. You don't like noise or worship or praise, you're in trouble in heaven. I think even if you had the opportunity to go up to one of these 
supernatural beings and say, could you guys pipe down for at least a few minutes and give me some quiet? Because, see, these supernatural beings get it. What they get is, He alone is to be worshipped. And if we really know who He is, that's all we'll do is live a life of worship to Him. In fact, what the Bible teaches is there's no one in the universe deserving of worship other than God. Any worship that you and I give to anything or anyone else is misplaced. He alone is worthy of worship. No one or nothing else is. Which is exactly what these supernatural beings understand. And here's what they never cease or keep quiet saying. We sang about this tonight. Holy, holy, holy. Let's first talk about those words. They mean to be utterly unique, distinct, set apart. It is the concept that God is the uncreated Everything else is created. He is the uncreated. He is totally unique and distinct and set apart from everything else in the universe. There is no one like our God. Holy. And notice it is three times holy. Which I personally believe is a nod to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice something. That holy is the only thrice repeated Statement about God in worship in the Bible. In other words, there's no other place in the Bible where it says God is mercy, 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 or God is love, 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 or God is patience. patience. No, the only one that is repeated is his holiness, because that's where it all begins. Unless we see God as holy, then nothing else matters. Which is why, can I just say this, it is so absurd when puny little man says, I don't believe in you, God, or I don't need you, God. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Then he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. This is the word that means the supreme master of the universe. Again, he's the one on the throne. Been there, always will be there. And then he says, the all-powerful. This is that word I talked about in week one, in chapter one. Pentocrator in the Greek language. It means the one who holds all things. The one who rules. We could even translate it this way. The strongest one. No one stronger than him. He's the Almighty. And he's on the throne. And by the way, to encourage you, He's in your life. He saved you and me. He died for us. This is the God who left this unbelievable environment, this place of worship, and took on a human body and came to die for us. And when we begin to think about what heaven was like and what it was like for Jesus Christ, it even puts us more in awe and wonder of the fact that he would ever leave that place and be willing to come and go through what he went through on it for you and me.
And then he says, who was and who is and who is still to come. Literally, though, in the Greek language, it's, it should be this way. Who is, who still is, and who always is. It's almost like he's just, again, trying to describe God is eternal. He's always been. And he always will be. Three kinds of beings. Creations, if you will. or No, I shouldn't say creation. Three kinds of beings. I'll, I'll stick with that word. There's animals. Animals have a beginning and they have an end. Then there's man and there's angels. Man and angels have a beginning but don't have an end. And then there's God, holy. He had no beginning and he has no end. That's what separates God from everything else in creation. Everything else either has a beginning and an end or a beginning. God's always been. God's never had a beginning or an end. And notice this in verse 9. What we are now seeing is this crescendo of worship. I want you to think about it in in those terms. Revelation is going to teach us about the crescendo of worship. In other words, once a few people start to get the idea of worship, it starts to draw other people into worship as well. And so these supernatural beings that have been worshiping God ever since they were created in the front of His throne, they have worshiped God. And then it says this, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, we could also use the word praise there, honor, that word could be translated reverence and respect, and thanks, that's pretty self-explanatory, to the one who sits on the throne, who again is eternal, who lives forever and ever, notice what happens in verse 10. All of a sudden, because of the worship of these supernatural beings, then the 24 elders get in on the worship too. And I believe what simply that is saying is that the church now in heaven is going to follow the lead of these beings who have been worshiping God way longer than we ever have. And once they begin to worship God, we're going to follow their lead in worship and we're going to begin to, to dive into worshiping the Lord ourselves. And here's what it says. The 24 elders, first of all, throw themselves to the ground before the one who sits on the throne. And they worship the one who lives forever and ever. Heaven is a place of worship. It's a place where God has His rightful place. It's a place where everyone in the universe acknowledges God in His rightful place, and where we take our proper place as well. The word worship here means to bow on our knees, if you will, or to bow before one to express profound reverence and respect. I thought about that word. Because we use the word worship a lot to describe a lot of different things and activities in the Christian life, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I thought to myself, this specific word in the Greek language, how do I, Jeff Royce, express my profound reverence and respect for God every day? Because that's really where it all starts. 
That's the heart of worship. In other words, if you and I, just like these supernatural beings before the throne of God, if we truly respected God for who He is and who He's revealed Himself to be, if we truly reverence who the Bible teaches us He is, then everything else would take care of itself. The problem is, most of the time, we are not in a position or our heart is not in a position where we are truly reverencing and respecting God like we should. Because that's where it all flows. And yet one day, we will all worship God as He deserves. And notice, they do cast their crowns before His throne. Again, because if these are crowns to the overcomers, the conquerors, those who have been victorious, we realize that we could have never done it apart from Jesus Christ. And that's why we don't deserve any credit for it. But what it shows is what even a fallen human being who turns to God in faith can do and what we can overcome through Him. Or what He can do through a human being. And that's what God is trying to show human beings ever since He created them. And here are the words of our praise in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. By the way, these words are in the present tense, which means you are worthy, our Lord and God, to continually receive glory and honor and power. And here's three things that John says why when he records this. First of all, you created all things. And then he says, and because of you, they exist. And then he says, and we're created. John is basically saying God created all things. He sustains all things. He's the foundation of all things is what those words mean. And think about what John is revealing here in our worship one day to God. It's the realization that nothing in the universe would ever have come to exist or be present apart from God. You and me, we, we would have never come to exist. I wouldn't even be alive. I wouldn't even know anything if God would not have willed it. That's true of everything in creation. Nothing ever came into being, John says. Nothing ever is present. Nothing ever existed apart from God desiring it to happen. Because nothing can come into existence apart from God. And nothing can stay existing apart from God. Again, how prideful man gets that, that the man who doesn't even believe in God, the only reason he's still breathing is because God is allowing him to. And finally, God is going to be acknowledged as the one who held it all together. You know, we may think that the world is falling apart right now. <laughs> My goodness, if God wasn't holding things together, it, it would look a lot worse, trust me. And that's part of what the tribulation is about. God is going to, in a sense, take His further hand a little bit further away when the church is removed. And that influence of the church is gone. 
then we're really going to see what the world would look like without at least some kind of influence for God and for good in the world. John says, when Jesus told me to come up to heaven, the first thing and the only thing I could see was the one seated on the throne. And then, all that happened around the throne. And it was all about worshiping the one on the throne. One other thing. Just another minute. Turn with me back to the book of Hebrews real quick. I want to end with this. In the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, one of my favorite verses in all the Word of God, the writer of Hebrews, writing to Christians, is telling us when we think of the throne of God, we never have to think of the throne of God as a throne of judgment. We should look at the throne of God, this throne, this ruler of the universe who has always been seated on the throne, who's in control, who is absolutely sovereign, who has all authority and all power, we should look at His throne as a throne of grace. And if we as Christians don't look at His throne that way, then according to the writer of Hebrews, we will never approach the throne to get the help that God so wants to dispense to us from His throne. That's why he wants to make sure that we have a relationship with him and that we have fellowship with him so that we understand his throne is not something to be feared or to stay away from. His throne is something to be visited all the time from us as brothers and sisters in Christ. When he tells us in chapter 4, verse 16 of the book of Hebrews, therefore, because we have a sympathetic high priest who's been touched and who can empathize with our weaknesses as human beings, he says, let us continually approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. That same throne, right now, one day we will experience what John says is going to happen in Revelation 4. But before that, while we're here struggling along, scratching out our existence on this earth as pilgrims and sojourners and strangers, we have the very throne of the universe to go to to find help at all times. And so when you think of the throne of God tonight, don't even just think about it in the context of one day being in that, in that, passage of Revelation 4 and actually being there, seeing it and remembering what we looked at tonight. But think about it now also as a throne that you and I can go to for help every time we need it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the throne of God. We thank you, God, that we have the assurance and the security and the stability that this earth is, is, is not resting on anything else other than your sovereign hand and rule. You've always been, you always will be. You are the eternal God. And you have been sitting on your throne from eternity past till eternity future. No one will ever take your throne. 
Lord, it's a matter of us acknowledging that You are on the throne and that You deserve our worship. God, I pray that You would help us as we study this book of worship, the book of Revelation, that You would help us, enable us, encourage us, come alongside of us, help us to be the worshipers that we should be. And help us, Lord, in our worship and acknowledgement of You and who You are, Lord, to be able to draw others into worship of You as well. Help the way we view You in a proper way. Help other people to begin to see You as all should see You. As John saw You. And as one day we will see You as well. God, encourage us, we pray, with these words. Encourage us with this revelation tonight, Lord. Help us always to remember the throne of God, but also the throne of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you next week.